Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the November 23rd, 2021 episode of Unchained. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes Noble, Bookshop.org, or any of your other favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S and pre-order today. Buy, earn, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first 30 days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. The Nodal Cash app makes earning crypto on your smartphone as easy as turning on your Bluetooth. Nodal Cash is private, secure, and available on iOS and Android. Visit nodal.io slash unchained. That's N-O-D-L-E dot I-O slash unchained to start earning Nodal Cash. Today's topic is tokenomics, aka crypto economics. Here to discuss are Jan Lieberman, co-founder of Delphi Digital, and Victor Boonen, protocol specialist at Coinbase Cloud, formerly known as Bison Trails. Welcome, Jan and Victor. Hey, so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Token designs are getting more diverse and more creative. But before we dive into the meat of the episode, let's just make sure everybody even really understands what we're talking about. Why don't each of you say what you think the definition of tokenomics is and why it's important? And Victor, why don't we start with you? Sure. So the way that I think about tokenomics is the ability to use incentive design to uh, set the behaviors that you want and consistently accomplish them. Normally, this includes the use of a token, but it doesn't always have to. There's a lot of social pressures and other responsibilities and, and ethics and other cultural norms that also play into it. And Jan, what about you? Yeah, not not to <clears throat> restate too much of what Victor mentioned, but yeah, the idea is a token is kind of a mechanism to organize uh, a set of individuals where, you know, if you assume that they all act in their own best interest or in a way that's most logical for them, how do you kind of organize that and combine that in, in a positive some way to, to create value or, or kind of accomplish what you want to accomplish? And so when people are designing these incentive mechanisms and tokens, what types of factors are they considering, whether it's things like fairness or liquidity or security or the developer ecosystem, or I'm sure there's plenty of other <laughs> considerations, but what do you find that people are thinking about and tend to value for some of the different choices? Like maybe you could give some examples of how that either affects the community or affects the value of the token. I, I think one of the most important things is for protocol teams or communities to first figure out like what it is that they're trying to accomplish and what their token specifically will be used for. So in a lot of work token models, for example, such as LifePeer or Keep and New Cipher or The Graph, the token is used to provide a service. It's, ser it's serving as a taxi medallion. And so there's an element of security there, but there's also an element of I am following the rules of the protocol and providing a service to specific specifications. And I want to be able to do that in a consistent way, but also punish folks that are breaking the rules of the protocol or not providing that, that service in a consistent way. And so that's going to be one of the first things that you think about is like, how does the token actually accomplish the goals of providing this useful uh, work to an ecosystem of participants? And then all the other things get uh, factored in afterwards, such as governance. How do we, like, what are we actually making decisions on and who are the right people to make that decision? And how do you incentivize the right people to actually participate in a protocol in a way that scales beyond the protocol team, but in, encompasses everybody else that should be part of it? I'll pause here because I think Yan has done so much incredible work with, with uh, protocol and token design that I'd love for him to chime in. 
No, no. And, and uh, again, yeah, really largely agree with, with everything you're kind of describing. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's really figuring out. So what is really trying to, what are you trying to realistically accomplish and how do you accomplish this? And then you kind of, you basically start at the, the, the primitive of, you know, what is the goal? How do you get there? And, and so you start incentivizing, you know, certain elements of behavior around getting, uh, achieving this goal. And then afterwards it becomes kind of this very iterative process of, of understanding, all right, you know, you can accomplish a goal this way, but with crypto, everyone is, is, is or in crypto, there's a lot of very savvy actors. And, and so there's always going to be kind of exploits. And so the whole idea is, okay, yes, it's very, it's fairly easy to get someone to do something, but it's fairly, it's the, the difficult part is how to prevent all the other kind of potential uh, negative actors or, or kind of value extractive actors where, you know, just because you reward somebody for doing something and, and you get them to do something that doesn't necessarily mean that this is a sustainable model or one that that's kind of foolproof. So it's, it's, yeah, it's figuring out what you want them to do and then kind of figuring out how to prevent everyone else from extracting value in a way that, that doesn't necessarily, you know, go in line with what you're doing. And at the same time, you know, there's a lot of importance with the, the so the community and the stickiness component is so with crypto, unlike in, in other places, forks are, are, are very prevalent. And so if, your protocol and we, we see it mostly in DeFi, and that's part of the issue is there's a lot of kind of mercenary capital and mercenary behavior that can exist and so you know you take a step back and think all right not only do i need to figure out how to incentivize them to do something and prevent someone else from doing it but how do i create some kind of stickiness longevity community how do i create actual incentives for them to stick around other than kind of you know pure tribalism which it happens to work in in certain communities but it's often a byproduct of, of, you know, being very early where individuals have made kind of life-changing money and, and, and a protocol. And so now they're, they're kind of, they're, they're tribalistically with it, but realistically you have to assume most are going to be mercenary esque to some extent. Obviously there's a spectrum there, but it, it's realizing, all right, on top of that, how do I kind of prevent individuals from, you know, accomplishing what I want them to accomplish, but then not kind of re- redoing that cycle elsewhere because it's so easy to kind of fork w- w- what's been designed and so I think that that's been a, a fun learning process and, and just observational process with DeFi in particular, especially, you know, over the past uh, two years or so. Yeah. In a way, it actually reminds me of um, kind of like a really basic thing that maybe parents sometimes deal with where they're like, oh, should I try to incentivize my children to do, you know, whatever, like chores or get good grades or, you know, eat healthy or whatever by either paying them or, you know, rewarding them with like sweets or, you know, whatever it might be. But then it's like, well, what's better is that you want them to intrinsically want to do those things rather than, you know, trying to game the system in order to get the reward. So it because like uh, what you're describing just reminds me of that. But so both of you have helped design or redesign various tokens. And I thought it might be fun for each of you to just pick one example that you would like to describe of a team that you helped, you know, maybe it was like they had a particular problem they were trying to solve and like, just walk us through why, you know, you all made the choices that, that you made. And either one of you can go first. Maybe, I don't know if Jan, you want to, cause I know Delphi uh, is sort of known for this. So yeah, yeah I, I'd say like a popular one's Axie, but I think um, just cause that one's been, you know, really overly discussed now, um, it would be more interesting to kind of talk about uh so ash report is a, is a project that we're uh incubating heavily through delphi labs and and so it, it's a decentralized exchange that's on the lunar ecosystem and um so you know we've worked with a lot of various DeFi protocols and and both in terms of like a consulting capacity and just um done plenty of research on them and it's interesting you, you see a decent amount of iteration so there's kind of uh, multiple innovation layers with dexes whether it's just the actual, you know, AMMs, the automated uh, market maker type, um, like a Uniswap, where, you know, it started with this simple XYK model, and, and over time, those have evolved. But there hasn't necessarily been as much evolution on, on the token design front. And so, you know, we saw the first instances of, of the value of a token when you know, the Sushi Vampire attack happened, right, where Uniswap was, was a dominant decentralized exchange. And then Sushi basically, you know, was a fork of, of Uniswap. And then they were able to incentivize a token on top. And the whole idea is, you know, come to our exchange and, and use it and we'll give you tokens and reward for providing liquidity. And the idea is if you provide the liquidity there, you kind of start the virtuous cycle of liquidity 
begets volume, which generates fees, which creates more liquidity. And so, you know, that exists, but Sushi's had its own issues where the, the disconnect there was, uh, and this is where the introduction of kind of like very mercenary as capital happened, where there was a disconnect between the users of the platform and the, the, the token itself. So uh, as a token holder, you, you benefit from the fees on the platform where um, basically by, by staking Sushi, you, you take uh, a sixth of the fees that are generated on the platform. The, the issue there was you, you kind of have this dichotomy where the users of the platform, you have the traders and or the liquidity providers. There's no real reason for them to hold the token. And then you have the people that own the token and they, they're just pure speculators that can benefit from upside there. And the, the loose agreement to some extent was basically, you know, as Sushi Price appreciated the value in terms of the rewards that they can use to incentivize behavior that would be value creative to the platform increases, right? If I, if I can give away one Sushi, if it's worth, you know, $1 versus $10, there's, it, it goes a, long, a longer way with being at $10. So there was like this kind of, that was the dynamic, but once, you know, it's very reflexive on the way up, but it's also can be very reflexive on the way down, whereas price goes down the way your, your ability to incentivize behavior, you know, diminishes. And, and, and so um, then, you know, volume is less or, or rather liquidity kind of disappeared and so on and so forth. And so the, the, the gap there is you had this disconnect between the users that are participating on the network or, or, or using the platform and those that are holding the token. And so with Astroport, we're kind of trying to tackle that and, you know, we've, we're taking some tips. So curve has um, an interesting model where you can use the token and lock it up to, to basically vote on rewards towards your pool. And, and so you also, and you kind of seeing this with uh, like token Mac as well, where owning the token can, you can stake the token and direct rewards to a pool. And so we're kind of combining a lot of elements there where basically the design here is um, you, you have, you know, similar components where, with sushi, you take sushi, you stake it into a pool, you get X sushi, which is a claim on that pool. And the idea is over time, the fees from the platform are used to buy back sushi, deposit it into the pool, and your X sushi over time is worth more sushi. So, you know, you deposit one sushi, you have one X sushi, and then over time, you can withdraw that, like you can kind of redeem that X sushi for more than one. And so that's how like the value accrual exists. Whereas, so we kind of take it a step further and basically allow you to take that X sushi and deposit it into, which is X Astro, deposit it into a, a voting contract. And, you know, the amount you, your, your vote is, is, a, is a function of how much you stake and how long you stake it for. And the idea there is, okay, what are you actually voting on? So with the, the fee structure, it, it's, there's usually like a 30 bips, uh, like fee capture. And what we're basically doing is rather than users pay 30 basis points, Typically, 25 would go to the liquidity providers and five goes to the protocol. So we're, we're kind of lowering that a bit and doing 20 basis points to liquidity providers. So five base and then 10 goes to the protocol. Five goes to that similar X Sushi, X Astro equivalent. And then kind of combining the, the curve thought process, basically, you can then stake your X Astro and you get this locked voting share. So the, um, the benefit there is as a, as a community if you have, if you're providing, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a fan of a certain token and you have liquidity on, on, uh, Astro, the benefit now is the community hold, holders want to be token holders because they can vote basically to direct a certain level of rewards to their individual pools. So basically if, if you're a liquidity provider on Astro, it's in your best interest to also be an Astro token holder because you can direct a certain amount of vote towards your pool. And then like kind of taking that a step further, you know, if you have, let's say 15 pools, and there's obviously gonna be a lot more, but let's say you have 15 pools that want to participate in, in order of like of, of voting rank. If you're number nine versus number 10, your, you know, incremental value of voting from 10 to nine. And then, so the idea is, you know, your share of rewards is a function of your share of the vote. If, you know, if you're in ninth place or 10th place, there's no real incentive to, to participate or like there's no like additional incentive to participate. It's just like a, a very micro level vote. And so we've introduced kind of like a, 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 a list that gradually expands. And so if you don't make the cut, you are effectively, you're, you're, you're missing out on the rewards. But if you're in this like top eight list, so basically you're always going to have a lot of competition at the high end because there's going to be a lot of kind of, you know, the, the very popular pools are always going to be, they're going to have larger communities, but it's the, the, the smaller communities that are often forgotten. But here you're kind of creating a lot of, um, incentive for them to participate because, you know, 
coming in eighth means you're actually going to get so eighth in in a in a scenario where all 15 participate you're getting a lot less eight in a scenario where only top eight participate you're getting a lot more and also going from eight to nine is a massive drop off because you don't actually participate in any of the kind of the rewards and then there's a lot of kind of additional um attack vectors that exist with with kind of like convex and and kind of uh like hijacking of governance and so i, I don't want to kind of uh hog up the entire conversation, but that that's one area where, you know, what we like to do is basically, you know, observe what works, read about it, figure out why it doesn't work and, and then try and kind of iterate and combine different facets and, 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 and potentially introduce some of our own. And that's kind of like the, the thought process behind a lot of um, the, the token design that we work on. It sounds super interesting. And wait, when is this going to launch? Um, we can talk about it here as well, but, but the launch mechanism is, is one we're really excited about as well, because it kind of addresses some of the issues with distribution and yeah, I can take a pause before going into that, but so that's going to launch the first part. It's, it's a, a three stage process, but it'll start on December 6th. Huh. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll circle back to that about the launch, but one other thing that actually I meant to say a while back was earlier when you just described Uniswap as XYK uh, for people who maybe are new or don't understand, that's just like the equation that is used to, you know, kind of maintain the price uh, in each liquidity pool. So, you know, the price of each token should always equal this constant K or, or when you multiply them, the two of them. All right. Um, so it's super interesting. And yeah, uh, I think there's like plenty we can unpack from there. But Victor, why don't you pick one token design that you want to walk us through? I had the pleasure of actually working on the first decentralized protocol merge between New Cypher and Keep Networks. Um, at Bison Trails, we are essentially just a, a blockchain infrastructure provider, and we support both of those protocols. And they both provide cryptographic services for folks that are that are interacting with them. And the fascinating thing there is that they started off with with different use cases. And that new service started off with proxy encryption, and Keep Network started off with Random Beacon, which is essentially a random a random number generator, um, and some other services as well. And what we saw is that they were uh, increasingly going to go and compete against one another in specific use cases. And so because I was very close to both of the teams and we were able to start you know, having conversations around what could potential merger look like. And I ended up being one of the leads uh, of the proposals that actually uh, went through governance and was voted on and accepted for how to merge the two protocols and the two communities into a single community and a single protocol. And one of the interesting things there is that it's one, there's no playbook or roadmap. It, it is incredibly, incredibly hard to do a merger of equals because of all of the, you know, different places that each protocol is in and different token distributions and different incentive designs that they have and different, you know, considerations around, um, you know, inflation and, and whatnot. And so one of the things that, uh, was a big, a big priority for me is actually, well, two, two bits. The first bit was around, how do you design for what the network will look like in its ultimate state? And that was crucial because when we talked about earlier about work token models is that they're providing services. And the nice thing about cryptographic services is that you can provide them in a modular fashion. Now you say, okay, here's the building block. And what this does is proxy encryption and here. And this does some zero knowledge stuff or here. This does some homomorphic encryption and, and so on. And so what you can do is you can actually opt into these services and you can uh, provide some or all of them, depending on what your preferences are as a node operator. And so one of the important things of the uh, incentive model is you want to be able to direct incentives to uh, encourage node operators to provide certain services that you think it's important for the network to do. And so as a really specific example, uh, soon the, the new network is going to be called Threshold. It's, it's actually launching, I believe, sometime next month. Uh, which is going to be really exciting. And on it is going to launch something called TBTC, uh, which is the, the version two of it. And you obviously want this TBTC, which is a decentralized Bitcoin. You want people to adopt it. You want people to support it and, and you know provide that service. And so that's going to be probably one of the things that the community is going to vote to incentivize. And so you have a bunch of these nodes like, hey, guys, we need a lot of nodes to make this successful. We need it to be super decentralized. We need for there to be a lot of support for it. And therefore, we're going to direct more of the rewards towards that use case rather than other ones, for example, that are less of a priority for the for the ecosystem. So that's like the first thing around how do you make sure that the actual work itself gets done uh, and is incentivized. The second part, and, and this is quite challenging, is that when you have these 
two, um, two token amounts and two communities and two whatever, how do you actually get them to use a single token? Like what is a fair way to do it, right? Is it based off of the value of each token? Is it based off, you know, the quantities and, and whatnot? Um, and if you say, okay, the new cyber team will get 60% because their market cap is larger than the keep side and they only get 40%, they're not going to be happy, right? The, the keep token holders are, are going to hold a grudge. That's what uh, we were very fortunate that the, you know, the market caps were fairly close together. The stages of the life cycle were fairly close together. And therefore, we could have done it and we did do it as a merger of equals where each token holder base got exactly half of the token distribution. Um, and then you can you know, map that using token factors essentially to convert, uh, go from one to the other. But for uh, the future, when there's going to be token mergers, uh, I think a lot of them are going to look like uh, acquisitions more than mergers and that there's going to be greater disparities between the teams and it's going to be less of a merger of equals and more of a one team subsuming the other. One of the nice things about Threshold is that now it sets it up so that um, new teams can actually join the network in that Ethereum is the only protocol out there that has like multiple clients that are you know in active development and Threshold is going to be one of the only work token models that's also going to have multiple client teams and the ability to add more client teams as other folks want to come and you know, add modular cryptographic services and then petition the community to say, hey, like you should adopt this and you should fund it and you should direct uh, its rewards to go towards the service that we're providing so that node operators adopt it and, and provide it to the community. So it was really cool to work on it. And I'm excited to see more uh, mergers in the near future amongst other protocols. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that will become a bigger thing. And obviously we did see in terms of uh, one involving, you know, two protocols that were maybe less equal was obviously the Polygon and her, Hermes or I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, deal. But, uh, actually let's now talk about a big change in tokenomics that happened for Ethereum, which obviously is one of the biggest. It's the second biggest <laughs> protocol, which I'm sure everybody knows. So in April, you know, they adopted EIP 1559, which started burning the base fee. And obviously we've seen that this has now led to ETH being deflationary at times, sometimes like for, you know, kind of a, a decent amount of time, which is fascinating, just, you know, and that's, that's being driven by things like NFTs and, and stuff like that. Um, but I was curious for your opinion on uh, kind of those changes and how well you think that design has played out and will continue to play out for Ethereum, especially as it tra transitions to the final merge for Ethereum 2.0? Yeah. So I actually, um, I took a look at this yesterday. So I have some really, really fresh metrics on it. Um, so thus far, EIP-1559 has reduced the net Ethereum issuance by about two thirds, which is a really, a really significant cut. And while Ethereum still is inflationary from that perspective, um, if Ethereum were to switch over to the merge today, um, it would actually be fairly significantly deflationary. And, and I think that it has actually a couple of really, really interesting impacts, some of them that are shorter term and some of them that are longer term. In the shorter term, EIP-1559 is, is like catnip to institutional investors because Ethereum makes a lot of sense to them and that they say, okay, this is a thing that you can build on and it has use cases and applications and yada, yada, yada. And also, you know, before people would say, well, how is ETH going to capture any of this upside? It has no mechanism. And, you know, folks that have been around in the industry for a long time realize that if something is useful, it's going to be valuable, right? And that's what happened with Ethereum. But uh, as new folks and especially institutions enter the space and now they can say, okay, well, we can actually model the cash flows and the impact of, this, of these activities and what this does to uh, the supply of it and how the, that could potentially impact price. Um, that becomes like a really attractive uh, narrative for them to latch onto. And this is combined at the same time with the merge occurring with the ability to stake Ethereum. And so now you have ETH that is this, you know, revenue generating quote unquote asset that you're able to provide security with, earn rewards on, and you're able to see how the supply of it will change over time. And you can like model all that against your, your income as a validator. And so I think from that perspective in the short term, that is why I think a lot of uh, enterprises, institutions and, and, you know, funds are extremely excited about Ethereum where we've seen such inflows into the ecosystem from that perspective. In the long term, though, I'm a little bit, uh, maybe a little, a little bit concerned in that I think the, the nice thing about Ethereum is that you want people to spend it. You want people to use it. I don't think it's meant to be something that 
you just sit on and wait for it to appreciate. And when you have something that's deflationary, one of the core characteristics of it is that you're expecting for it to go up in value. But if you're expecting for something to go up in value, you have less desire to spend it. And while that may be great for currencies like Bitcoin, um, I don't think that's the right uh, framework for something that is meant to be used and is meant to be to pay for gas and is meant to fuel this this economy, which is ETH's role. Um, and so from that perspective, I think I'm I'm super bullish on AIP1559 in terms of its impact on Ethereum. But I think long term, one of the things we're going to come to is to figure out like where that you know inflationary versus deflationary kind of like direction uh, has to end up in order for us to accomplish our goals of making something that's really useful for people. Hmm. John, do you want to add anything? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think those are all really good points. Crypto is probably one, if not the most like reflexive thing I've I've really ever come across. Um, and and I think so. If, if you look at you know the net issuance or, or the kind of net inflation relative to, um, you know, the, the change, it's not that seismic, right? If, if you think about it on like, you know, in, in terms of the the amount that's being burned relative to the size of the entire kind of um, the entire protocol, but but the narrative is, is very, very strong. And, and like Victor mentioned, you know, it, it's very, it's very, um, digestible for, you know, people who are used to seeing buybacks and it's like, oh, I can, I can, you know, think of it akin to this. And, and so it becomes, you know, very digestible and, and familiar. And, and so that's very massive. And then the other thing is, you know, if you go to this like kind of net deflationary narrative, then it goes from, all right, this just becomes something that I can kind of use as, as um, a, a random currency that I'm, I'm not really looking to, to sit on to all right, I'm, I'm happy using this as a form of collateral to borrow against or, or kind of holding this as some form of store of value. And so I think what ends up happening is that in, in the similar way that, that Bitcoin's finite supply is what really is part of what strengthens its store of value narrative. I think this deflationary kind of component also strengthens the, the, the store of value narrative for Ethereum. And so I get the apprehension for, you know, I think that's a, a, a super fair point where, you know, eventually it could come, come back to bite you a bit where, you know, part of it is meant to be spent. But I think realistically, you know, Ethereum pre being deflationary still could have been easily considered a store of value because, you know, the incremental difference in that issuance or, or burn isn't that massive. It's only really seen over the course of many, many years. But this net deflationary kind of component, that's where the reflexivity comes in. It's like, okay, this is net, def- net deflationary. We think there's going to be more adoption, so we think this will only be increasingly more net deflationary. So I'm very comfortable using this as a store of value. Oh man, others are using this as a store of value, so I will as well. And so it's like this small shift that just kind of loops and loops and 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 it like reverberates through the, the like communities, holders, and investor mindset. And so I, I do think that like you know, obviously the concern of of people not wanting to spend something like, you know, the idea of, uh, and that's why I don't don't think Bitcoin will ever be this, you know, global like currency. It's just, that's not what it is, or at least, you know, from my opinion. But the interesting thing with ETH is that, like, I think the the net spend on gas for most people is negligible. So, you know, if you're spending it and, and, and so it's like, what else are you really spending it on? If you're, no one's really going out and buying cars with ETH, you're buying other things in, in the crypto community with ETH, whether that be NFTs or, or, I mean, NFTs being a big thing and then NFTs is obviously like a massive subsector, whether it's in games or just art, but most of those things end up being priced in ETH as well. And so to that respect, most people are, I think, are going to be comfortable spending it because you're still kind of exposed to it. But like, yeah, the, the, the gas component is obviously an interesting one in terms of spend, but you know, in bull markets, people are, are, are clearly comfortable spending just obnoxious amounts on it as evidenced by the, the burns that we see during these NFT mints and, and things along those lines. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's going to be a really fascinating thing to see play out. I mean, I think your point that against the total supply, the burn is small may be what will offset that desire to hodl rather than spend. But I, you know, I, I think we won't really know until it happens yeah, I, I, I guess the one thing that I like about EIP one five five nine is it does, you know, just tie together so much more closely usage and demand with the price, which just seems like intuitively how it should be, right? You know, if something is being widely used, it should be valuable, and then therefore that should cause the price to go up. But you're right that then it kind of has these other knock on effects. So uh, it'll, yeah, well, we'll just have to see how that plays out. 
even to, to that, it, it kind of like shifts the value from value flowing to miners to, you know, value flowing a bit more to the protocol as a whole. Whereas before it was pocketed by, by them. And now it kind of just reduces the supply, which is, is more kind of the socializing the benefit. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It widens that. I, I love that actually. That totally makes sense. Um, okay. So in a moment, we're going to talk about all kinds of other issues and problems that come up due to token design. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. With Nodal Cash, you can earn crypto on your mobile device for free with no hardware to purchase. You just download the Nodal Cash app, turn on your Bluetooth, and start earning. Nodal Cash is private, secure, and easy to earn, whether you're on the go, stuck in traffic, or even while you're sleeping. You can even repurpose your old smartphones to earn Nodal Cash. Visit nodal.io slash unchained to get started. That's N-O-D-L-E dot I-O slash unchained. Join the Citizen Network to earn crypto on your smartphone 24-7. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first 30 days. With Crypto.com Earn, you can get industry-leading interest rates of up to 8.5% on over 40 coins, including Bitcoin, and earn up to 14% on stablecoins. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere. Enjoy up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions, and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code Laura. Link in the description. Back to my conversation with Jan and Victor. So we did see a couple of issues recently with a couple of popular airdrops. Uh, one was ENS, um, the Ethereum name service air- airdrop. And, uh, you know, people... Which, I mean, I think this happens all the time, but again, people were gaming the system. So do you want to kind of describe what happened there, what the problem was, and then how you guys think maybe it could have been resolved differently or or better? Yeah. So one of the challenges there was that somebody had either leaked or figured out or somehow optimized their bot to spin up a whole bunch of new Ethereum addresses, put some ETH into them, register ENS names, and you know make sure that you, they set all the parameters correctly. And either through inside knowledge or some sort of locker determination, uh, they managed to secure themselves what would have been a very sizable airdrop amount of ENS tokens because they met all the eligibility uh, criteria in order to maximize that. And you know it's one of those things where the community uh, spotted it early, and they gave feedback to the team that these addresses were engaging in this behavior. The team reviewed the behavior of those accounts and also other accounts as part of the uh, list of accounts that were going to be receiving the airdrop and banned, actually, I don't remember the exact number, maybe about 1,500 uh, addresses from the list. Uh, so they blacklisted them. And so those addresses did not receive any, any token airdrops. And, you know, some folks have different opinions about it, but I think that. What it kind of boils down to is, and you know, I think a lot of things actually tie indirectly back to whether or not you think code is long and whether or not you're supposed to apply it, you know, equally to absolutely everybody, regardless of whether or not they're a good actor or a bad actor. And I fundamentally disagree with that. I, you know, in circumstances like this, nobody's entitled to an airdrop. Nobody's entitled, entitled to receive, you know, not only free money, but also a say in how the network is going to govern itself and spend its funds and, and otherwise incentivize adoption and, and so on. And so I think it's actually, it's not only optional, I think it's a responsibility of every protocol team considering doing an airdrop to be thoughtful about who they're dropping the tokens to and to intentionally comb through the list of, you know, the list of accounts and see, are these real users? Are these people that are going to be contributing or are these people that are Malicious or that are vultures or that are value extractive. Because when we think about it, you don't start a company or a family or a school based off of whoever's around, right? Like you, you don't do it through this random chance of like whoever shows up, right? It's like, all right, guess we're doing this together. You're, you're intentional about it. Why? Because if you're bringing in people that are bad actors, not only does it like unfairly benefit them, but it also hurts the good actors and they see that. People that are bad actors are, are, are getting money and they're getting benefits. And, 
you know, they're doing that in, in a way that is making people that are, are good actors that, and do try to like play by the rules, like feel really negatively about it. So I, I'm, you know, a hundred percent in support of what the ENS team did. And I look forward to other teams doing that and also much more to make sure that, you know, they're airdropping tokens in a way that's very targeted and very intentional and truly accomplishes the goals that, that they set out to do. Yeah. And actually before Jan weighs in, I mean, like something kind of similar happened with Paraswap. And I just wondered in general, because what ENS did to resolve it was a retroactive solution. But I wondered also if you guys had ideas on how airdrops could be designed ahead of time to not fall victim to these bots that are trying to farm the airdrop. Because with Paraswap, their estimate was that some people were deploying literally tens of thousands of bots, which is, that's, that's a lot. So <laughs> I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a quick thought and then I'd love to pass it over to Jan. I, I, I think one of the things, and, and this may be like important to comment on is that just like we were talking about with tone design earlier with airdrop design, you have to have a specific goal in mind of what you're trying to do. And there's a couple of like high level goals that people should try to accomplish or probably are trying to accomplish. And one of them is going to be, you know, give folks skin in the game. Of like the people that you actually want to to continue to stay part of the ecosystem that have been providing value and, and being active. The other bit is you want to obviously incentivize early users and people that have helped you get to where you are. Um, and the third thing is that you want to think about how do you treat this as a customer acquisition cost, um, not only to acquire your existing customers, but also continue acquiring customers long into the future. So you're not turning people off by saying, okay, like only a small subsection of people will get it and other people won't. And so I think that with, with folks like Paraswap, they did, I think, a generally good job, generally a good job on their airdrop in that they were super targeted. They knew exactly who they wanted to get in there and they got those people in. But the mistake that they made was that it wouldn't have cost them a lot to get all the other users that aren't bots and just give them a little bit of skin in the game and, and give them a, a quick thank you. You don't have to make those people very rich, but you should acknowledge that they help you get to where you are. Uh, in, in, a, in a way that doesn't then make them salty uh, about not, re- not having received anything at all. And so I think that was one of the mistakes that, that they made. And so when you think about like what ultimately drives a good uh, airdrop design, I think more and more what it's going to come to is identity. And that identity can be done in like a super reputation-based way and, and your activities and whatever. But honestly, I think identity is going to be done the identity way of saying, okay, how do we tie back like real world identifiers to whether it's ENS or one of these other things. Because what you want ultimately is you want a proof of uniqueness, a proof of identity, a proof of humanness. Um, and then when you have that in, in some variation, you're able to be much more intentional about, okay, you know, this is a person that's super active and they do all this governance and all this activity. And therefore we want them to be participating in governance activity on our protocol as well. And like, boom, you can do that. Um, or this person is a whale, but they're like a long-term whale versus a short-term whale. And so you started being able to be like really granular by getting the right people uh, in the door. So I think I think we're getting there. There's decentralized efforts, obviously, but I think centralized ones will always also get us like part of the way there. So we'll just see which one of those like takes off first and actually gets adoption by enough users to make it worthwhile to, to use it to target. Jan? Um, yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more with, with, with basically everything uh, Victor said. Yeah, the issue is obviously the the, the, the parasitic um, participants. It's a double whammy, right? Where they're not only are they extracting value, but they're making the value that you gave to everyone else also worse. And and just kind of you know they're they're taking they're kind of hitting you on both ends where they shouldn't be getting it, and now those that got it are worse off than if the the people that shouldn't be getting it even got it in the first place. And and so yeah, it, it's certainly a problem. And yeah, so I. I very much agree that um, this identity kind of situation is certainly going to be one that's going to be uh, more on the forefront where we're very bullish on, on the idea of on-chain identity. And and so um, in that you can, you know, provably verify what in, an individual's participation has been over the past X amount of time. And you can pretty, you know, easily, not easily, but, but quickly kind of get a, a rough quantifiable idea of how much value they can really provide to your protocol as well. And so you can be a lot more kind of targeted in particular with your airdrops. And so yeah, like one of the things we're actually working on is uh, is this kind of NFT primitive where you'll be able to effectively kind of uh, customize your NFTs based on um, rewards you've gotten 
And those rewards are a function of your participation in, in various protocols. And so you, you, you'll have these kind of like you, you can basically combine uh, you know, a, a shell with different whether it's, um, you know, different details. So it can be like, a, a, you know, imagine like a PFP that you that, that iterates and, and evolves over time based on what you've accomplished. And so it's a way, you know, there's the, there's a public side where you can obviously show off like, oh, man, this guy was a massive whale here and he was one of the first LPs here. And, and so that's you know, super valuable, both in terms of just elevating the kind of the status of, of your of your uh, PFP that wasn't just, you know, a function of you spending a bunch or getting lucky with a mint. It's actually work you've done. And at the same time, it, it's potentially a way to also identify valuable participants in the ecosystem. And, and then you can you can do this across chains, right? Like if, if this exists, you can you can monitor these these valuable participants across chains. And, and, and now with bridging and, and kind of how easy it is to to move across them, you, you can bring liquidity, bring users, bring these power users or, or, you know, really get targeted with these airdrops because, yeah, otherwise it, it can be a massive waste in terms of uh, customer acquisition costs. And, and then, you know, a poor airdrop just really sets you on on um, poor footing to to begin with where, you know, it, it just shouldn't be a disadvantage you really need to deal with. There's a lot of obviously other things that you need to target. And so part of, part of a good airdrop is also having good token design going forward where, all right, yes, you rewarded a certain user, but then, is there a reason for them to actually hold it beyond just being a fan and thinking number go up? Or, you know, is there a way for them to use it to actually interact with the protocol? And, and whether that's through a gov- through governance, through monetary benefits, you know, it really depends on, on kind of what, what the protocol does. But yeah, it all really starts with a quality airdrop and then quality kind of integrations afterwards. Yeah. And actually, just to go back to this identity issue, because I also, as I was even just writing the questions for this, I was like, oh, gosh, I feel like until we have blockchain-based identities, then (laughs) this is going to be a problem. But I came across a blog post that Anil... What's his last name? Anil uh, Lula? Lula. Lula. Okay. Right. Um, At Delphi, he, he wrote about how one resolution would be to link reputation to yield. And is that what you're talking about? Just like seeing, oh, certain addresses participated in these various protocols in different ways. Is that how he's defining reputation? To some extent, I think you can have more objective metrics where, you know, it's black and white. Did you participate and to what extent? And you can, you know, quantify that without any real subjectivity. The reputation component is is a really interesting one because it's, when you're thinking about like token design, it's, all right, how do I really keep someone incentivized through participation or, or like how do I create some level of stickiness? And in the early days, it was always financial. And, and that's tough because it's that's often zero sum in the sense that if I'm giving you extra financial benefits, it usually comes at the expense of, of someone else or the protocol or something like that. Whereas with reputation, that can be its own community-based kind of element in the sense that reputation can be granted by others to others within the community. And so you have this like natural filter of the people who know the most are actually able to distribute the most reputation, but obviously there's, there's ways to gamify that. And so you constantly have to kind of think through these loops and, and, and really ensure that there aren't really these attack vectors because, you know, as good as design can be, if, if, if there's a way to exploit it and it breaks, it really diminishes all the value that's been built up previously. And so, but yeah, we're, we're very bullish on the idea of, of kind of reputation within DAOs, within ecosystems to allow those who are actually, you know, knowledgeable, really con- um, contributing a lot to, to kind of rise to the top. And, and, it, and then it becomes, you know, healthier for all participants where, you, you know, I think with, with DAOs, especially as they get really large, you, you're going to have this free rider problem. And, and that, that can be very parasitic. But to, to be able to really uh, incentivize and reward the people that are actually delivering the most value ends up being, you know, very useful for everyone involved. Yeah. And, and if, I, if I can chime in just one other thing there is that, you know, one, one thing, going back to your point earlier about kids uh, having extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, I think one of the conclusions that we're going to have to come to as an industry is right now we're trying like very hard to make things as extrinsic as possible and that everything's happening on chain and it's on chain reputation, on chain contributions, and you can look at your activity. But I think the reality is that, especially as like these DAOs and, and organizations need to scale, you're going to have a lot of soft reputation. You're going to have a lot of intrinsic motivations. You're going to have like a lot of this stuff that happens off chain because you're ultimately dealing with humans coordinating with other humans. Um, and so it seems like right now, one of the things that we're doing is we're saying, okay, how far can we push it in the direction of everything on chain, everything extrinsic? And then from there, you kind of walk it back and you say, okay, 
you can't have everything be on-chain and extrinsic, which parts we need to have be off-chain and intrinsic and, and a little bit softer. Okay. Yeah. I think uh, probably in, in a way there's, I mean, already we're seeing there's going to be like a, a big mix of, of designs. Um, but that also now takes me, because we've been talking about these airdrops where like the protocol has already launched, but they're kind of like retroactively rewarding users. And I wanted to ask about like launching coins, as I'm sure you're well aware, there's this tension between the fair launch coins and the VC coins. And that goes back to this, you know, question that has been, you know, for forever in, in crypto, even like before I started covering this six years ago, which is the issue of like, you know, pre-mine or no pre-mine. And, um, and of course now that also raises questions around like vesting and lockups. And I'm wondering if you guys have an opinion on, on all that. Like if you think it's always better to just, try to do the fair launch thing or, um, you know, what, whether you think a pre-mine ever could make sense and if so, how that should be designed. Uh, so thinking about doing, I guess, like fair launch versus, you know, VC investors as someone who is a VC investor, uh, like naturally, I guess there would be some inherent bias, but, you know, realistically, we're always trying to think of what's the best, um, approach here. And I think the, the biggest issue is that thinking that it has to be binary, you know, having, VCs that are actually builders and 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 helping uh, contribute to what you're designing can be very useful. Versus, I think what we what we sometimes see is just you know in the same way you have mercenary capital in in these launch strategies, you also have mercenary kind of VCs that are just you know investing in a bunch of places and and don't really have the capacity to to add value besides just you know the, the capital they provide. And so I, I do think to some extent having the right investors is is more valuable than not. But I, I, you know, I, I get the idea from those that aren't investing from their perspective that, you know, it, it isn't fair in, in terms of what's being delivered. So ideally, the idea is that bringing these investors on board actually ends up being more value creative than, than not. And so, you know, you're owning a smaller slice of a larger pie is kind of the idea. And so you always want it to be fair. And it's just like, what, what is the definition of fair? You know, to some, I think it started with a bit with Wi-Fi and the idea is fair is it has to start with zero and everyone kind of minds. But, you know, at the same time, is it fair that the, the people that found out about it in the first 24 or 48 hours are going to just out like farm you by a larger extent? And like, then does it really become fair? And so I think you, we've seen the definition of fair kind of gradually evolve. And I think fair ends up being, you know, a very public pre-announced um, distribution plan where you explain each component, why, it, it, everyone has the ability to participate and their participation actually adds value to what you're trying to build or, or what mechanism you're trying to design. And so I think, you know, fair has, has shifted where previously it was just zero investors. First people in are starting to get it to, all right, it's fair in the sense that you're not going to have uh, people who can code in solidity snipe or like, you know, you're not going to have people who can code snipe out um, the initial drop. And and FAIR is is now what's the most equitable way to distribute where certain people aren't disadvantaged because they're not as technically savvy or they didn't hear about it in a, in a small chat first. And so yeah, I think the definition of FAIR has really evolved. And, and uh, you know, I, ideally, that, that's kind of where, where we sit in terms of that that kind of conversation. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. If, if I can actually maybe push back on the question a little bit in that, I actually think that's the wrong question to ask in that like we've seen super decentralized token launches that are from zero, like and urine is a good example or grin, for example, in the, in the layer one space. And we've seen super centralized token launches, right? Uh, where a ton of the supply is held by insiders. And I think one of the things that we're coming to a conclusion of is that like they obviously impact how successful a protocol is going to be, but it is not necessarily resulting in a more or less successful protocol just from that. And what we found is it's kind of random, right? How successful the protocol will be, whether or not it launched, you know, fairly or unfairly, uh, you know, quote unquote. I think the better question, and, and this is something that nobody's been able to answer so far, is how do you continue distributing a token over its lifetime in a way that is fair? And that I think is, is the hard part. Like right now, the closest thing that we have is like, okay, you're going to do liquidity mining, right? And then if you're a liquidity provider, you will continue getting, you know, getting some tokens. And that's kind of like the V1 of it. But, you know, the other question is, how do you continue to incentivize, you know, people that participate in governance and people that add value and people that are thoughtful and, you know, companies that are, uh, you know, adopting it or building partnerships for it or tooling for it or whatever. 
And so those are the questions that we really need to answer. And right now it's done in a little bit of a crude way. And now you have a one-off governance proposal to let's give this person a grant or let's fund this marketing effort or whatever. But these are oftentimes like one, not utilized enough and two, they're kind of crude. And really what you want is you want to find a way to continue deploying a treasury, continue to deploy inflation and continue to incentivize people to do value added of things that distribute the token more and more widely over time to the right people doing the right things. That's the part that nobody's really been able to answer and is also in a lot of ways independent of whether or not the, t- you know, the token was like fairly launched or unfairly launched. And I think, you know, one of the things we've seen is that you can have like a pretty small, pretty small token launch, but then you have, you know, quote unquote, a, a theoretically unlimited amount of time that, that these things will be live for, right? They can go on forever. And so based off what you started and then what, what you do, it really starts to, starts to compound. And that's the area that we need to be focused on. Yeah. Well, so talk about that. Like, what do you think is the optimal way to, you know, structure a liquidity mining program? Because as you guys have talked about throughout the episode, you don't want to attract this mercenary capital that is just going to leave you once, once the rewards, you know, taper off or whatever it is. So, you know, what are your thoughts? It, it's really about rewarding the users that are, it's, it's a combination of rewarding users that are, are, you know, going to be interacting with your protocol and then also having a, a way for them to do so. Right. So, um, and not, not to pick on, on sushi here, but just, <laughs> just like we were already on the topic, but so like they're, they're, they had an, an awesome, you know, initial kind of, um, distribution, uh, situation and, you know, it's a very successful vampire attack. The idea was um, for the rewards that you got, um, one third you'd get up front and then two thirds would vest over time. And so that that worked in, in, in two ways where, you know, initially it was very reflexive on the way up, very reflexive on the way down where, you know, I'm providing liquidity, I'm getting this yield and I can only sell one third of it. So, I'm, I, you know, I'm seeing a large number come in and I can only really liquidate a, a smaller portion of it. And then, so what happens is, you know, a, a lot, a lot of liquidity because now number continues to go up, and so you know it, it gets very reflexive. But then the the kind of the the subsequent headwind is that after this mercenary capital has realistically left, you know, they, they farmed it, and there's potentially another farm, and that, that's kind of the issue with DeFi in general, where if there if it's, it can be very mercenary, where okay, I'll fork it, and now how do I compete on a natural level when somebody else can just fork and then create new a new wave of incentives, and so they. Like that, that kind of happened. And then you started to see the unlocks come in and the unlocks were now given to people who are probably no longer providing liquidity. So now, you know, they're not really adding much value, but they're contributing to a decent amount of, of, of kind of selling. And so, yeah, it, it ends up being very bullish on the way up, but very, you know, negative on the way down. So the idea is you have to kind of understand, you know, you want to introduce enough supply into the market where, it's enough to reward people, not enough where you're basically overpaying because, you know, like Victor mentioned, it, all of this is, is effectively customer acquisition costs. And so if you're overpaying, it can be, uh, it can considerably, you know, weigh down the, the protocol as a whole where if you're over rewarding certain activities that, that aren't necessarily as valuable as the rewards you're giving, it, it, it's, you know, net negative. And so that's kind of one thing to keep in mind. And then the other is understanding, all right, these are users who, you know, it, once they receive the token, they, in, in that situation, they can either sell it or stake it and, you know, with the expectation of number going up, but there aren't really additional benefits outside of that. But when you kind of start to introduce ways for them to continuously benefit from the ownership of the token, it's when it's basically you want your, your customers to also be your token holders rather than uh, distinguishing the two. And, and so when you distinguish the two, you have to kind of provide separate incentives to some extent. But if you can overlap them. I think the incentives themselves become much more effective because it's not purely just cash. It's actually a valuable asset that they're getting that they can uh, leverage to, to, you know, receive further benefits. And so it's, it's really just all kind of boils down to this, this game of incentive alignment. So I don't know if this is a, a little bit of a hot take. Um, I'll let you guys be the, be the judge of that, but I think we should assume that liquidity providers are always going to be mercenary capital. Like when we think about who has the most liquidity in the world, it's always going to be investors and institutions and money managers, like, and like large institutional players. And what do those people care about? They care about yield, right? And from that perspective, I think it makes sense to 
like think of them as always just optimizing for yield. And, you know, there will be a component of, oh, I think this network will grow. And I think, you know, all this stuff, but treat them all as mercenaries. And so then, then what does that mean? Well, what it means is that what we currently think of liquidity mining programs in terms of let's give money to liquidity providers, I think it should be flipped on its head. And that really what you want to optimize for is usage. Because if you have a lot of usage, right, the fees that are being generated by the, by the protocol will be high, which will be the incentive for liquidity providers to come and say, hey, right now it's paying out 20%. I'm willing to accept a rate of as low as 10%. And so I'm going to put a ton of liquidity into here until you know the rate hits what I'm, what I'm willing to accept. And so from that perspective, I think that nobody's really figured out how to do that yet because one way, one crude way that we've seen is you say, okay, I'm going to incentivize the borrowing or I'm going to incentivize the trading, but you can just gain that, right? That's the, that's the whole point. And especially as fees drop on things like layer twos or, or rollups or whatnot, um, it's going to be easier and easier to game it. So the question is, how do you incentivize the, the kind of like ungameable, uh, actual adoption and usage of this protocol? And nobody knows yet. And nobody knows how to do that in a, in a decentralized and trustless way. You know, one of the shortcuts to it is you say, okay, you know, maybe we form a partnership with Dharma or with Argent and we're like, Hey, route all your stuff in here and we'll give you, you know, some, you know, a kickback or, or it'll be a subscription or it'll be something. Um, but it's obviously in a centralized way. And so it's not a perfect way in a perfect world. We'd, we'd like to find a, a decentralized way to do it. And I think that's going to be like whichever protocol figures out how to do that, how to incentivize the actual like usage and, and partnerships and collaborations um, is going to do really well. And then the liquidity will, will follow that. So we're, we're running out of time and I literally have ditched so many questions because um, like we can just go so deep on, on any one of these topics. But um, I, I did want to ask about NFTs and maybe what I'll do is actually just quickly sneak in this last question that kind of is a takeoff what you just said. But like, I wonder if more of this will be about kind of like identity and community as time goes on, as we're kind of seeing in the NFT world. And the reason that I say that was, I'm pretty sure that I heard this on an episode of uh, Frank Chaparro's The Scoop podcast, um, where he was interviewing, um, so I, I don't remember who it was, but um, I think it was like somebody from Jump Capital. And they were talking about how like, uh, you know, which in the traditional financial world, it's like all about keeping things close to your vest. But then they were saying that now if for their crypto activities, they are trying to get involved in governance and in the community and like being more transparent. You know, the way that he was describing it, it just sort of seemed like it was almost like becoming they were like creating this identity for themselves in this space. Right. And, you know, when you're watching things like what's happening with the NFT world with Board Ape Yacht Club, where, you know, they gave the Board Ape uh, owners, you know, the rights to make derivative works and things like that. And then now we're seeing like all these new projects coming out of out of that. So I, I'm wondering if like that is how you kind of make it more organic. But I'm curious for your thoughts and any other thoughts you want to say about designing NFTs because, um, you know, to incentivize kind of like the value there. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that what it boils down to it. So at, at Bison Trails, I'm part of maybe like 40 or 50 different protocol communities at this point. And so we've seen all the different iterations of going from a testnet to incentivize testnet to mainnet and how all these different ecosystems um, come up. And the thing that keeps sticking out in the protocol space, whether I'm looking at layer one or layer two or interop or DeFi or NFT is that community is a killer feature. It's, it's like, it's, it's that simple and people try to complicate it, but it's, it's not complicated. Community is a killer feature. And so when we think about design and when we think about community, you know, management, the driving force behind it should be, how do you create a community of leaders that act as owners? that have the agency and ability to go and do like what they want to do in order to add value. And there's a degree of trust there, right? Because if you're, if you're empowering people so much, you're saying, Hey, we're, we're trusting you to do the right thing with this power that you have. And a lot of brands are very afraid of that. Um, but what we're seeing in the, you know, board of yacht club community is that these are folks that are extremely excited to be part of this cohesive community. And they want to do things that not only make the brand better, but they also have a lot of fun doing together. And so from that perspective, I think it's, you know, they, they've done like a truly incredible job. I'm not, and I, I'm a board ape NFT owner myself as well, just, I guess, uh, to, to give that disclosure. But I also think having said that, that that is the V1 in that 
we haven't seen him go poorly yet. You know, at some point somebody's gonna you know take their ability to do this and, and do something pretty nefarious with it, right? Or they're gonna do something that's uh, you know, very not safe for work or, or whatever it is. And so it'll be up to the community to figure out like, where are those guardrails and, and what are we willing to tolerate both at the like extrinsic level of like what you're allowed to do or not allowed to do based on, you know, the agreements that you have, but also the intrinsic level of, are you a good community member? What are we, you know, welcoming as part of the community and, and what are we not? And so I think the NFT space is probably going to be pushing the DeFi space forward quite a bit in terms of that culture and in terms of that community, in terms of that intrinsic stuff. Um, and I think ultimately what we, what we're going to see is that a lot of the DeFi folks have NFTs and a lot of the NFT folks have DeFi. And so I think these designs are going to like really build upon each other to make what is going to be, um, really powerful communities that can withstand shocks and withstand black swans and withstand a lot of stuff and, and really thrive, uh, with powerful community members. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I largely agree that, that, those those two are massively overlapping now in terms of just like an ownership basis, but the, the functionality still hasn't really seen as much of an overlap as, as it certainly will in, in the coming months and years. And so yeah, that's kind of part of the, the thought process behind uh, the, the kind of the, the NFT standard that we're, we're helping uh, design. But also I, I think one thing you're actually starting to see is the value of, of, a, of, of a governance token within these NFT communities where you know, part of sometimes you're starting to see it as uh, like basically, you know, NFT communities are, are airdropping a token sometimes for weaker failing ones. It's just like a cash grab thing, which, you know, uh, it, it's inevitable. Like it's just a kind of like a function of the space. But in the healthy and thriving ones, it's just another kind of way to, to coordinate and, and organize the community where, you know, you can also leverage reputation on top of that as well, which which would be more merit based than. Uh, a, a, an airdrop, which is just purely based on, you know, how many you own or, or some kind of derivative of that. And so um, I think what we'll start to see is is basically some kind of meta layer of, of governance that, that's orchestrated around a token or, or, or reputation that is used to really organize these. Because, you know, uh, I really agree that the community is, is the hardest thing to build. You know, it, it can't be manufactured. It, it can't be really incentivized purely. It has to be organic. There has to be some reason why people want to spend their time there. It's not something like I'm here in, in you know, I'm not idly farming this. I'm actually contributing my own time and going out of my way. And so, I, I, you know, community is definitely the hardest thing to really build. And so it's, it's going to be natural that in as these communities grow and in order to really maintain some level of organization, there needs to be something that they can use between them, whether it's token or, or reputation to, to organize it all. Yeah. And, and maybe, and sorry for chiming in again, but just the last point there is that, you know, Board API Club did announce they're going to do uh, a token and they, you know, probably will be airdropped or I don't know if a party will be sold. Doesn't matter. But I think one of the interesting things there is that you have a, a culture that's constantly doing things that's organizing parties and, and, you know, and getting celebrities to do stuff or getting partnerships or sponsor, whatever. Right. And the interesting thing is that once you have a token, is it going to be a finite amount of it? Or will there be some inflationary component? And if there is an inflationary component, how do you as a community figure out what you want to incentivize, not only the types of activities, but also the specific individuals? And there's a, there's a lot there to unpack is that you don't want it to be a popularity contest, but also like people that are going to be doing good work are going to be well-known. And so how do you uh, do that in a way that people feel is fair and that people are bought into the process? And now you're starting to get into this really like interesting poli-sci, democracy, like, the, uh, like characteristics where you really have to unpack it and almost like in some ways relearn all the lessons that we've learned over designing like the U.S. democracy, for example, but then figure out like where does the crypto component sit there and how is how is the game going to be, you know, 90% the same, but like the 10% is, that it's different, how is it going to be different and how are we going to leverage that successfully? Yeah. Yeah. One other thing that I was thinking about while you guys were discussing this also was like the friends with benefits token, which I just like, I was asked to comment on this, uh, well, I won't say who it was for in case they don't want me to reveal, but, um, but it was like, you know, wh what do you think the future of money is or whatever? And I was like, oh, I think it's going to get a lot weirder and it's going to be a lot more tied to your identity and interests. Um, because, you know, if I look at things like, yeah, the board, Yacht club or friends with benefits, like it just feels like, oh yeah, it's like you just have this kind of, um, 
like group that you hang out with. And then you all have this identity is represented by this token. And in a way, it does end up sort of being like a popularity contest, um, I think. <laughs> but anyway, oh my God, you guys, I had so many questions we did not even get to. There's just like so much we could discuss on this. So we we should totally redo this at some point later next year because uh, the rest of my calendar for 2021 is filled out. Um, but this was so fun. Uh, where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Or, and and uh, you know, if you have any recommendations on resources for tokenomics, let us know. Uh, well, for me, you can just go to the Bison Trials website on our blog. We publish a lot of stuff there. Or just follow me on Twitter. Just my first name, last name, V-A-K-T-O-R-B-U-N-I-N, Victor Bunyan. And my piece of advice is for folks that are interested in this space, make sure you get the basics. Um, and so the Internet, of Mo- the Internet of Money, Volumes 1 through 3 by Andreas Antonopoulos, is an incredible resource that really lays down the foundation upon which so many of the things that Jan and I talked about are laid. So highly recommend uh, giving that a read. Yeah, you can find out more about Delphi at our website, DelphiDigital.io. We, you know, subscribe. Uh, we, we send out a lot of free content um, as well. And so feel free to, to join there. And then you, you can follow me on Twitter. Also, first name, last name uh, is, is my handle. Perfect. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Yawn, Victor, and tokenomics, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening.